Welcome to the Moot Podcast. In this evening's homily, Claire Catford explores the issue of the sacred in the ordinary. Narrative to the bits just been read, but uh, we'll take the veil of the theme. I hope I looked in the right book. Um, I've got a verse here which I picked out from the reading I thought we were going to hear, which is, we've renounced the shameful things that one hides, and we refuse to practice cunning or falsify God's word. Either way, the veil and shameful things that one hides, it's about being hidden or hiding those things that we feel ashamed of. My friend Rebecca rang me before I did this, and she's very amused by the word homily. In fact, we called it something else that I won't mention in the church environment because it might upset people. Um, and she says, is it not a homily where you're telling people to do things? She said, that's what she's always understood it to be. And I was trying rather badly to explain what I thought was the background to the word homily. But the most, um, the most meaningful interpretation, and I like to say this every time I'm given the privilege of doing this, is the word conversation. Um, and that was taught to me by a dear man I see quite regularly, grandly called a spiritual director, who says a conversation which, of course, implies a two-way street. It's not me telling you from my vast reserve, reserves or lack of uh, reserves of wisdom. It's a two-way conversation. Um, I must admit to preparing this homily in a rush, in a week of complete stress and terror and fear, and I'll explain why in just a minute, um, and little things happen in my week that I like to use to illustrate, particularly the idea of the veil and hiding. Um, some of you may know I do a regular radio show on a Sunday morning. I'm very big in Reading. <laughs> my friend always calls it, my friend Rebecca always calls it broadcasting to the bigots of Berkshire. <laughs> if this goes on the web, please, I don't mean to upset anybody. Um, and today I interviewed a man about marriage. He was uh, from a, in inverted commas, Christian think tank. And the top line was that apparently every marriage or relationship that splits up costs the taxpayer £1,300. Um, in response, I said, well, I've clearly run up quite a bill. I'm really sorry about that. And um, bless him, he was, was a nice man. And I said, do you know many people who are divorced? And he said, no, he didn't. Um, and we managed to kind of extract something from the interview. Uh, and and I, I was proud of the fact that I wasn't trying to make him look small, but I was trying to be true to who I was rather than hiding that just because I happened to be doing a program which has a faith connection. I do um, a weekly course at the Maudsley Hospital, which is in South London, um, rather grandly called an MA, and let's just deconstruct that. Basically, that's reading a few books and writing a few essays about things that you don't often understand, but you hope you understand them a little bit more once you've read the book. And this particular term, the course I'm doing, is called Religion, Spirituality and Mental Health. And we had to fill in a questionnaire at the start of the seminar um, term, and one of the questions in it was, would you introduce someone who is mentally ill to your friends? And I said, well, my friends are all mentally ill, so I don't have a problem with that. And one of the things that's emerged from RMA is the stigma attached to mental illness. Um, those of you who know me well will know that I have an ongoing journey uh, with depression, though that doesn't define me, that's just part of my journey. And it's very, very uncomfortable being at the Maudsley. It's the most uncomfortable place. I've probably ever been in. Um, and I said to our tutor, I said, it looks, when you come into the Maudsley from the outside, it looks like there are two serial killers having a cigarette out front. And she said, that's very interesting because people often feel they're going to be contaminate, contaminated by mental illness. But again, this is all about the theme of hiding. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or falsify God's words. That veil that is taken away from us and exposes it, exposes us. Um, is often 
is often very frightening and leaves, certainly leaves me in a very vulnerable place, and maybe you as well. One of the uh, people I have been reading, a guy called, I think this is how you pronounce his name, Roy Stenhoff Smith. I don't know if you ever read a book, either because you have to or because that's what you, 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 fall, you, you find, um, that really captures your imagination. Um, and he turns on its head the idea that the person doing the homily in this particular instance is in a position of power, handing down nuggets of wisdom to those out there. He uses the example of those who are being cared for as the teacher by describing an event um, whereby a homeless man wants to join in his church community a group that, that helps other people who have mental illness. And the people within the church have real difficulty moving this man from someone who receives care to someone who can give care because it reinforces their power if they stay in the powerful position and reinforces his neediness if he stays in the homeless person's position. And the way this particular theologian actually explains it is thus, the alternative politics requires that we let go of passing on wisdom to them, the vulnerable, the unchurched out there, assuming of course that we have it, or in my own case, passing on wisdom to you from a position of great knowledge and power. Rather, Christians follow the Jesus of Luke 10, who placed the power to define love in the perspective of the sufferer and the power to practice love in the activity of the unbeliever. Christians join with and learn from sufferers, not minister to them. In other words, I stand here in this homily, this conversation, which is a two-way street, as someone who is learning from you, whose pain has brought me to my needs, and who has no less or no more of an idea of how God works than any unbeliever or non-unchurched person or anyone in this room. I don't want the false mechanism of being right or being the one who tells you how it is with God or how it should be. I want us all, including myself, to be grown up. As we heard in Aaron's reading, Jesus in Luke was transformed from the ordinary into the extraordinary. While he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. As I was sitting on the loo before a media training session on Tuesday, trying to deal with a panic attack, and I've talked to a couple of you about that, I felt far from extraordinary, I felt very, very ordinary. The last time I got a panic attack um, of that nature was when I actually got divorced. I'm now six months away from my core relationship. I've never been single for longer than four months in the last 20 years. And it's as if there are two people in my body, the competent professional Claire and the terrified child, fearful of aloneness, terrified of not measuring up, and too scared to reveal that vulnerable bit to those I love and that I try to hide behind the veil that I'm ashamed of. I would have loved to have been transfigured over a Jesus in dazzling white on that Tuesday when I couldn't breathe. I began to sweat and thought I wouldn't get through the day. And the next day, the ordinary Claire, no makeup, terrible, really, really distressed, dragged herself to the doctor's complete with a soft toy for comfort that I carry around in my bag. It's my behavioral tool. I couldn't stop crying. A kind receptionist took me into her room whilst I waited for the doctor who listened and prescribed Valium for emergencies and prompted me to see my psychiatrist. Um, that to me is very ordinary. The next day I woke up, I had porridge, I slept a lot. And again, it was very, very ordinary. The struggles we all have I think are all universal, all part of the human condition, and are often very ordinary. Depression, lack of self-esteem, fear about money, fear about the future. 
But to us and to me, they often feel so extraordinary, particularly in isolation. It feels as though when you look outside, you're walking down the street, everybody else's outer is coping compared with your own inner, which is not, or in my case, it clearly wasn't on Tuesday. So I, we feel as though we're completely alone in our pain and anguish. Last week in our little service, we had a wonderful interpretation of the storm that blew up whilst Jesus and the disciples were crossing the lake. And one of the interesting things about that particular reading for me was the way that the disciples resorted to understandably childish and childlike coping strategies who can blame them. When we're frightened, or when I'm frightened, that's where I go, back into the familiar fear. And those coping strategies, the fear, the insecurity, the inability to have faith, the fear of impending death, are all completely normal human reactions. But for a lot of the time, we feel shame about revealing those. We feel shame about letting down the veil to show those kind of emotions, raw though they are, to others. Revealing those things in our community is probably one of the most courageous things we can do, as well as the most terrifying. In her brilliant book, Women, Sex and Addiction, author and therapist Charlotte Davis Castle is asked by a journalist about whether we could all do with therapy. Well, I've had years of it. I'm not quite sure how much it's achieved, but um, it's the question that she was asked. And she replies that in an ideal world, no one would have to have therapy at all. I believe that what we truly need, she says, is an increased ability to love and care for one another. Instead of more therapy, we need more community. To heal from an addiction in an addictive society is like an alcoholic trying to recover in a bar. To heal from sex addiction in a culture that routinely sees bodies without seeing souls is just as difficult. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or falsify God's word or hide behind the veil. Normally a homily type giving person, which I think is the role I'm supposed to have, would unpack these verses, contextualize them, explain when they were said, why they were said, and what Paul was trying to say to the Corinthians in saying them. Um, sadly, I didn't get around to reading all the commentaries, and I'm not lazy at all, far from it, too much of a perfectionist, but due to my medical ups and downs, I wasn't able to spend as much time as I would have liked. So what this is, is my context and my interpretation based upon my own critical conversation with myself and the culture I find myself in. So I have perceived the text in a particular way. It's by no, mean, no means definitive. The hiding of our ordinary struggles makes them extraordinary and overwhelming. I was able to call a couple of people in moot in tears during the panic, and the sharing began the healing. Um, that is community, in my opinion, at its best. Perhaps the coping strategy that says we should hide the ordinary, a coping strategy that we may have learned as children, and that we should go it alone, probably one of the most insidious coping strategies we have in our culture, self-reliance completely the opposite of self-care. Self-care is about needing people. Self-reliance is about pushing them away. Perhaps those sorts of philosophies and strategies no longer serve us. And perhaps God wants to love us into another way of being. I'm very, very um, allergic to words like should and ought. I don't like anyone talking about God should or we should and we ought to do this. Perhaps God wants to love us into another way of being. Perhaps we might think of having enough love for ourselves to put away those childish coping strategies with support, of course. You can't always do these things on your own. I know I couldn't. Perhaps it's time to let go of the processes and the ideas 
and the ways of doing which are familiar and comfortable, but the more we hang on and the more I hang on, the more uncomfortable I get, both within myself and within my community. At the age of 18, I couldn't be on my own in a room for longer than five minutes. I had to be with someone because the fear of abandonment was so strong. I can now, not necessarily through choice, spend a lot of time on my own in my flat and I live, I live alone with my cat. Not that I choose to necessarily isolate, but I can actually hold myself in that place. If I cannot be authentic about those things that are disturbing, about those things that I fear inside of myself, then I hide and I am shamed. Those things that shame us, we can bring before God. Lily Allen, that well-known sage and songstrel, said, I'm not a saint and I'm not a sinner. I'll be okay as long as I'm getting thinner. Quick, quick fix solutions, attachments to things or ways of behaving that don't work, addictions, of course, are an example of that, are coping strategies. And they're things that people use because they often don't feel that there's an alternative. And I know that's my own experience. They work until the pain gets too great, or perhaps there is a crisis and they just don't work anymore. And then, possibly, that's the springboard to look at other ways of managing. In a sense, there's a diligence about letting go, uh, an observation about when possibly I am trying to control things and, and trying to hand it over to God. It's very difficult, these things. Language is, constricts the reality of what I'm trying to say. The thing is, I often find that, and I don't think it's about God punishing us. I hate that idea of a punishing God, that if we don't lesson, learn the lesson the first time, it'll come back again. But I notice that things repeat in life. Things nip at my heels and continue to attack my psyche if I don't accept it, go through the pain and come out the other side. Sometimes that letting go can seem as if it's a direct challenge to God. A man in my mental health option for the MA I've just talked about told me how he brutally verbalized his own truth in a church setting. He let down and set down his veil. My name's Peter. I'm gay. My partner's dying of AIDS, and if you can't accept it, I'll just piss off and you can take it up with God when you see him. For Peter, brutal though his comment was, it was an attempt to break out of the hidden shame that had brought him to a suicide attempt a number of years ago, an attempt also to become authentic within a Christian community that he longed to be part of and acknowledged in. Some members of that community walked out. Perhaps they couldn't face the unprocessed fears and feelings within themselves. Of course, the truth is we always react to those things and others that we have in ourselves that we haven't actually discovered. And others stayed with Peter along his journey. The dazzling white Jesus amuses me because it sounds like an advert for Sillit Bang stain remover. <laughs> Plus, if Jesus was black, maybe it was more of a dazzling grey. I think these things do get lost in translation. None of us have a dazzling white life, thank God. But the hope, the great hope, is that God can transform us, sometimes dramatically and sometimes in ways we can't even register. I think there is sometimes a grandiosity amongst the church that we long for transformations that are dramatic. Our culture likes extremes, it, it's, it's dualistic, it's either this way or it's that way. And the ordinary is often so unextreme. it is exactly that. Tiny little changes, tiny little steps forward. I got here today on the tube, my heart rate remained relatively normal, and I didn't need to get out at Queensway to go to the Lewin Panic, the underground guys know me quite well there. There's a transformation of a very small kind, and I thank God for it. We're now going into an examine, 
If you're listening to the podcast, please use the examine in the Moot Pocket Liturgy book, which can be found on the Mootique. Thank you for listening to this Moot podcast. For more information on the Moot community, please go to www.moot.uk.net. Our next Moot podcast will explore the work of Martin Newell, who was a political activist and priest in the Catholic worker movement.